As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show where we bring you the thought and theology of N.T. Wright, a.k.a. Tom Wright. The show brought to you in partnership as ever with SBCK and N.T. Wright Online. I'm Justin Briley, head of Premier Unbelievable. And today, listener questions on how to interpret the early chapters of Genesis, what Tom believes about the nature of Adam and Eve, whether suffering and death existed before the fall, and much more. Plus, Tom will be pulling out the guitar once more for a Genesis-themed song if you listen right to the end of today's show. This was first broadcast in 2019, but we're bringing you some fresh answers to your questions very soon. Thanks to A Dragon, who got in touch to say, the only bad thing about this podcast is that I can't yet listen to more episodes. Tom and Justin have had such a large impact on my own theological shifts in recent years. Wonderful to have a place where hard theological questions can be discussed and presented in such an accessible, thoughtful way. Can't wait to hear more. Thank you both. Glad we've been helpful for you. Do leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps others to discover the show as well. And for more from the show, do register for our newsletter at our website. Among the many perks of registering is that you get all kinds of bonus material. In fact, we'll send you God's Not Dead. It's an ebook by Christian thinker William Lane Craig laying out the evidence for God's existence. So if you'd like to register, get that free ebook premierunbelievable.com the link is with today's show now on to your questions genesis evolution adam and eve the fall these are the questions that i've brought together for today's podcast tom of course uh, in a previous podcast you played for us that song you uh, you composed genesis. with yes. with, with francis, uh, francis collins, yes, collins. Yes, yes. um which I, I thought has tremendous words. There's a lot of depth to it. Um, but obviously, a song can only say so much and so can a podcast at the end of the day. Sure, um, sure. These are big issues, aren't sure, they? Sure, sure. Um, we'll do our best, though. Um, let's start with George in Mexico. Thank you for listening from Mexico, George. And he says it's simply the age-old question, variously put. Is it indispensable in the interest of a strong Christian faith to be able to reconcile the findings of science with the literal interpretation of the Bible? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Two big questions there. I sometimes say to people, the trouble is, you think the jigsaw has pieces of this shape and you're trying to fit them together like that. But actually, over time, that piece of the jigsaw has got out of shape and so has this piece. (laughs) So the phrase, the findings of science, Mm -hmm. is always, in fact, fluid. Yes. Um, 
every scientific finding is a hypothesis in need of verification. And again and again, it may take a generation or two. But then along comes Einstein, who says, actually, we've been doing it wrong. Now we need to do it like this. And that goes on. And likewise, what do we mean by, mean by the literal interpretation? Um, and obviously, over the last two centuries, the question of the Bible being, quote, literally true, unquote, has been massive, particularly in North America, where a particular strain of rationalism came in with the Enlightenment broadly in the 18th century. And much of American Christianity seized onto that in a, a false war, a, a phony war between people saying it's all rubbish, it's all myth, it's all just made up, and other people saying no, it's all literally true, and pinning that onto um, the idea of the authority of scripture, which comes through in Protestantism ever since the Reformation, that if you're challenging the authority of the Pope or the Church, well, what you've got instead, well, it's the mm -hmm. Bible. So mm -hmm. the Bible must be literally true, mm -hmm. otherwise we don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. And then so the Protestant emphasis on the Bible comes together with the Enlightenment emphasis on rationalism, and you've got a big problem, mm. especially when then Epicurean scientists like Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather, are saying we've got to look at the way the world makes itself, which is ancient Epicureanism with a modern twist. Mm. And then Charles Darwin eventually gets on a boat and discovers some turtles and finches and so on and says, bingo, got it, this is how it all works, sort of. Um, but then the new thing there is the, the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And people forget that what that means is, like the idea of monkeys typing Shakespeare, and you've got to imagine really rather a lot of mm. near misses. Mm. So for evolution to work, you have to stress it out over mm. massive millennia and the ancient epicureans saw this as well as the modern ones this is not a modern idea mm. but this is where the idea of evolutionary development which i think most modern christians would happily uh, accept in some way or form gets hooked up with a modern idea of progress that actually this is where everything is progressing and therefore we the scientists are telling you the way the world mm -hmm. is we're telling you the way mm -hmm. history is going that's where the problem comes because actually science doesn't do that uh, and and actually nor does a so-called literal mm -hmm. interpretation of genesis either and very often when we're talking about the quote-unquote literal interpretation of Genesis so we're talking about the very early chapters um, mm -hmm. and we're talking about the creation narrative Absolutely. and in that sense you know this is a question from me rather than, than a listener though I think a lot of listeners will yeah, be asking yeah. this question is simply if if in a nutshell you were asked to say to someone who's confused how am I supposed to read Genesis if it's not a yeah, scientific yeah. description of how the world came to be what is it I am well, reading there are several layers and uh, we loosely refer to it as poetry and of course it isn't poetry in the sense that it isn't composed in the same way as say the Psalms are it doesn't have that kind of verse mm. structure but it's poetic in the sense that as only poetry can it's saying three or four or five things at the same time and my friend and colleague John Walton from Wheaton College has written very helpfully on this in terms of the ancient Near Eastern world mm. Uh, that forms the context within which Genesis would have meant what it meant. The Lost World of Genesis, I think. Is That's one of right. Those, yeah. uh, he's written several books and a commentary on Genesis. Mm. Well, I think two commentaries on Genesis, if I remember rightly. Um, and part of the point there is that this description of something being created in six stages, ending with an image being put into it, is the creation of a temple. The image being humankind. In, in Genesis 1, yes. Mm. If you create something... 
uh, this structure which is a heaven and earth structure, which it is, and if the last thing to go in is an image, and then the God who's made it takes his rest, Mm -hmm. that's coming in to take possession. This is now God's home. This is where he wants to be with his human creatures. And so it's a way of saying, look at the whole creation, the way we look at a temple. Mm. And then it also means turning it round, look at the temple in Jerusalem as a microcosm of the whole creation. And certainly the, the decoration of the temple indicates that, as in the tabernacle in the wilderness as well. So that suddenly a whole world of cosmology is opened up, which has got nothing whatever to do with were these six periods of 24 mm-hmm. hours. Now, actually, most British Christians, and I think most Christians around the world, don't get hung up on the six periods of 24 mm-hmm. hours in the way that some Americans still feel they have to. And it's a shame. It's because that major event happened in American culture, the Scopes trial mm. in, was it 1929, something like something that? It was like that, somewhere yeah. around there, which, you know, w- nobody else could have had that. That was a post-Civil War, northern liberals versus southern conservatives flexing their theological muscles. And everyone wanted to know what was going to happen about this because it was sort of, are we going to be in the modern world or the ancient world with all sorts of overtones? That was a very America-specific thing. And I I never tire of saying this because these questions regularly come Mm. from America and people Mm. often don't realize how peculiar that context is. That needs demystifying. Yes, the the, the cultural context often determines the kinds of questions people are asking. But um, Here's, here's some actually from Surrey, Derby and Romania, of okay. all places, um, <laughs> who, who are asking related questions yep. uh, and particularly to do with, well, how did, um, what are the results of the fall if there is a long evolutionary process involving death and decay and so on? So I'll, I'll just read all three sure, of these. Sure. They're asking similar questions. Malcolm in Surrey says, it's said that creation and evolution are not in conflict, simply different ways of describing the same thing. But whereas Creation teaches that death came into the world through sin. Evolution teaches that death was in existence from the beginning. Can that circle be squared? If not, is the gospel message invalidated? Ada in Romania says, I don't know how to view creation in terms of the understanding we now have of science. Evolution, again, implies death, suffering, fear, survival of the fittest, etc. How does this match with Paul's teachings that through sin, death has entered the world? Uh, And again, death came into the world through a man but also with God's declaration of the goodness of the initial creation. And finally, Jamie in Derby, who says, you believe that heaven is a restoration of the heavens and earth. It was originally in the beginning. You also believe in millions of years of evolution. What we see in the fossil record is millions of years of bloodshed, cancer, disease, suffering and death. So according to your worldview, all that horror existed before sin. What exactly will a restored earth be like? And what exactly was the physical punishment for sin if all, all of that existed before sin? Sorry to be blunt, but your worldview doesn't <laughs> seem to add up, says Jamie. So, <laughs> Yeah, clearly there are, again, if I spoke before about two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, there's about ten there, <laughs> yes. and they're all in need of cleaning up, and okay. I'm not necessarily the right person or the best person to do all of that cleaning up. However, it does seem to me that I, I take the point completely If there is a long period before that primal pair of hominids find that some strange force or power or presence that they were only dimly aware of seems to be saying to them, you are special, I've got a job Mm. for you to do. Um, That rather does imply, and many theologians have said this, precisely that the call of 
call them Adam and Eve for the sake of argument, is itself the creator's act of saying, now there's been a lot of mess and muddle and decay and and so on, but now we're going to have a garden and this is going to work out thus and so. And they are called to be God's agents and instruments to bring his wise order into this creation which has hitherto been without form and void, tohu abohu. Mm. Um, when they then rebel, this is at a different level, as it were, so that there is, yes, decay and death in the fossil record, in trees and plants and dinosaurs, mm. whatever. Um, but when they are told, on the day that you eat of it, you will die, there is something else going on there, a different level, which I think may correspond in some ways, though I've not really worked this out, to what you get in the book of Revelation, where it talks about the first death and the second death, mm. that there may be different different levels, different meanings of death, and that Paul is definitely looking at the second one. Mm. But the other thing we have to realize there is that as with Genesis 1 and the temple, so with Genesis 3, if we assume, as most people do, that the Pentateuch is being edited, at least during the Babylonian Mm. exile, and it's seen as a whole, so that there's a narrative arc from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy, clearly the end of Deuteronomy is saying, if here is the law given to Israel, if you obey, you will live, if you disobey, you will die. And what will die mean? It will mean exile, the Mm. curse of exile, Mm. Deuteronomy 27, 8 and 9, picked up at the end of Leviticus 18 as well. And then there is the prospect of restoration, but that's how the narrative works. And so anyone in Babylon, in the Jewish community, uh, in sort of the, the middle of the first millennium B.C., writing or reading or editing Genesis 3 would say, we know exactly what the story is about. Mm. Here's a family who are given a task, given a lovely land to live in, uh, told to be responsible, who blew it, disobeyed, and they get kicked out. And that is the ultimate death, because how can you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? In other words, this is already an allegory of Israel, Mm. or vice versa, Israel is to be seen as acting out what's happened to all the human race. So you've got these different bits of the great Jewish story jangling against one another. And until you've put all that back together again, it's hard, as it were, to put the different elements into a rationalistic scheme and say, well, Paul says death entered, so Mm. how are you going to do that? Mm. Um, So I'm not saying that solves the problem. In a sense, it complexifies it further. But I think it's a healthy complexity, um, which then enables us to say, that there are levels of death, Mm -hmm. that God's choice of the humans was in order precisely to bring new life and coherence to the chaos, the Mm. tohu abohu, Mm. that when they messed up, this was the beginning of a new level Mm. of death, which then had to have a new sort of injection of life, that the work of the ultimate human Jesus has to do what Adam and Eve were supposed to do, but also to rescue them Mm. in the process. Mm. And that, I think, is why Romans 5, 12 to 21, is such an incredibly difficult and dense passage. Paul is saying all of that at the same time. Right. Well, let's talk about that again um, from a different perspective. Robin Downderry asks, what is Genesis 3, by which I assume he means Mm, the sort of mm. passage about the fall of Adam and Eve, the rebellion, trying to tell us about a fundamental fracture between God and man? 
Why does Western theology in particular appear to traditionally focus on the fall and the curse? Why would God curse and banish a mankind that was created in love and blessing? Mm, mm, mm. About 20 years ago, maybe even more, maybe 30 years ago, there was a an American called Matthew Fox, who was actually a Dominican, except the order then didn't like him anymore. And they, I think he became an Episcopalian, actually, okay. as many do. Um, and he wrote a book called Original Blessing, mm. which was a kind of an answer to original, original sin. sin. Mm. And he was um, basically a New Age proponent um, who used to go and stay up at the community at Findhorn up in northern Scotland and so on. And it was an odd mixture. I once did a, a television program with him one to other people, and it was an odd mixture of bits of genuine Christianity with bits of extraordinary New Agey stuff from um, – it must have been the 80s, actually. Mm. Um, and uh, – there the emphasis was the Western church ever since Augustine has been fixated on sin mm. and curse and death and oh dear and how do we get out of that. But in fact creation was always wonderful and good. The danger with rejecting the dualism is that you buy into a monism mm. where as with other forms of monism like stoicism it's very hard to have any critique of evil at all. Mm. If there's anything you don't like in the world, in other people, in yourself um, then as Epictetus says the door stands open you're free to leave. In other words Stoics commit suicide if they don't mm. like the mm. way things are. Um, it's fine to be uh, a, a, an original blessing person when the sun is shining and your family being nice to you and, and, and mm. you know, you've got money in the bank. Mm. For most of humans, for some of the time, and some humans most of the time, it's not actually like that. And so most humans most of the time are faced with the question, well, yes, there are great good impulses, but things have gone horribly wrong. It's like... You know, people say, well, I can't believe because of the problem of evil. But if you're an atheist, you have the problem of good. Why mm. Why would anything seem other than random mm. if, if yeah. you're a complete atheist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dawkins, I suppose, would say it's atavistic impulses of remembering um, hunting rituals from mm. when we were in the trees and so on, um, that, that things which seem good to us are really related to those primal instincts or something like that, mm. I'm caricaturing. Mm. Um, so I want to say, yes, God created the world and he created it good, but the goodness was never static. It was always, Genesis 1 is the beginning of a project. It's not a tableau. This is really, really important. Mm. So that in the New Testament, it isn't a matter of saying, let's go back to the garden. Mm. Like a famous song by Joni Mitchell has that, <laughs> we've got to get back to the garden. Um, no, where the garden was the beginning, the garden was God's project, which turned into a city was it meant to turn into a city mm. when cain built a city mm. isn't that interesting mm. the tower of babel says no book of revelation says well yes actually but not like that mm. Mm. so it isn't the tower of babel humans reaching up to god the new jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth so the garden is meant to be the beginning of a community which turns into the garden city the danger is that it turns into a city which is purely human arrogance etc Mm. And, and those are the images we ought to be looking at because those are the things which say yes to the goodness of mm. creation, no to all that's infected and corrupted it. And, and now, where is this going to go? What is the new world towards yes. which we're aiming? Henry asks, did sin come into the world through Adam? Satan was already present and along with him sin. If God is going to finally deal with Satan and annihilate him, why didn't he do this before he created Adam? I suppose I want to go to, to another facet of that, which is 
but what is what what do you conceive is what happened when that that fall what, whatever form it took that rebellion happened what what did that sow into creation and how how, how is that something that that is responsible for the the physical attributes you know this creation that is subject to decay as, yeah, as yeah, Paul yeah. puts it I, yes in a sense i want to say the creation was before the call of these two hominids was already decaying and yes. going through a cycle. It, it had that nature. But um, the human project was to take it from there and move it into the new way that God intended okay. it to be. Um, it's very difficult to cash out Genesis 3 into any other sorts of propositions. Mm. Um, whichever things one does, there will be elements missing, and this is, this is of course, notorious. And uh, but I, I do want to say that the early pair, if they were a pair, and I, I don't much mind if there were exactly two of them, but you know what I mean, mm. the, the early hominids who are given this vocation are thereby given a call to worship the creator and reflect his wise stewardship into the world. And somehow there is something, there is this tree in inverted commas, and this snake in inverted commas, which say there are other possibilities here. Mm. Do you have to do this? And I wouldn't go all the way into the traditional, quote, free will defense, unquote, as though we had to have freedom in order for it to work. But something like that needs to be said along with all the other things that are going on. And part of the rationale of why there's a snake seems to be that in the lavish extraordinary creation that god made you know once once you get away from sort of thinking mm. of god simply with these six periods saying oh, now i'm going to do this now mm. i'm going to do that now mm. the end of mm. conversation once you move with somebody like john polkinghorn into a mm. much more open idea of god dare we say experimenting um god saying let, let's let's do giraffes why not you know, <laughs> uh, let, let's let's do pineapples so I mean, there's, there's, you just have to think around creation a bit and yes and you have to say god was having fun with this stuff mm. but out of all of that um god is a much more unpredictable god mm. the danger is that i think ever since particularly the deism of the 17th and 18th century we tend to see god as the clockmaker, mm. as the one who's made a machine that ought to work, and if it isn't working, it's his fault for making it wrong. And I think that's a fundamentally I, wrong view of God. I mean, coming back to Henry's question, where he, he asked sort of about the role of Satan in all this, um, and I have heard others speak of the idea of a sort of fall before the fall, the sure, kind of the cosmic sure, fall, sure. which at some level precedes and is kind of, uh, I've heard theologians speak of that as being the, the thing that creates the the nature of the universe into which Adam and Eve are yes. this project of, yes. of restoration. I'm not sure about the word nature, but no, but, uh, but but there, there's some sense in which the, yeah. the a cosmic fall. You know, and yes. I, I forget yes. the exact re- uh, reference in scripture, but where where we only have a very brief mention of it. But the idea that um, there was a, a an angelic rebellion. Yeah, yeah. It's the beginning of Genesis six, mm-hmm. where, where when the watchers, um, you know, and this is where some of Milton comes from, and so mm-hmm. on. The rebellious angels who get crossed because. Um, it seems that God is going to make these human beings who are going to be his primary agents. And, and these angels think, hey, that's not fair. Mm. We, we ought to be that. Um, there is enough in Scripture about that, in some of the Psalms as well, actually, um, for one to say something like that seems to be there. What we have to have again and again with Scripture is appropriate hermeneutical humility. This doesn't mean 
um, that we can't know things, it means that we just may not have very good language for this. Mm. And I think they were as aware of that as we are. Just like we today, we talk about there seem to be some forces unleashed. You look back at the history of the Mm. 20th century Mm. and you say, Mm. in the 1930s, there just seemed to be demonic forces unleashed. I have no idea what that phrase actually means. But what we're saying is more was going on here than simply the sum total of a few wicked human beings. Mm. Something else was at work, rather like Scott Peck says in his book, People of the Lie, that there's a certain amount that humans just do by messing up, but then there is another dimension beyond that. Mm. And it seems to me that to to project that back onto early cosmology cautiously is quite a wise thing to do because Scripture does Mm. seem to be doing that. And that doesn't exactly explain why there's a snake in the garden, but, but I think you have to say something about the freedom of God and God's um, lavish letting be, God saying, mm. let there be this, let mm. there be that. And the things that God says, let there be to, are not puppets. Um, yeah. There's a sense in which God does and doesn't control them, like the author of a novel does and doesn't control the characters. If the author of a novel tries to control the characters too much, it'd be a very bad novel. Yes. Um, let's get a last question in from s drummond in texas and i think this does fall into the sort of whole free will sort of question Mm -hmm. but um s drummond says one question i've never found an answer nor have seen discussed among theologians and i did study theology and philosophy regards adam and eve's fall And, and he says he understands the bible passage may be allegorical but how could their disobedience be a punishable sin if they were created pure and couldn't tell the difference between a good and evil before committing the sin, if they committed the sin willingly, it means they chose evil over good and could already tell the difference. If they did it ignorantly and couldn't differentiate good from evil, then God would have been unfair in his judgment. The only logical answer, in my view, according to the story of Genesis, is that they already knew good and evil. Yeah, th- th- this is this is a, a cleverly argued little bit of sort of philosophical speculation. And, and as an exegete, as a historian, I'm always wary when theologians or philosophers say this must have meant or would have been right. or whatever – because I want to say, hang on, what is being smuggled in here? Mm-hmm. And I would want to take that whole paragraph and, and just gently <laughs> unpick it and right. say, are we sure about these moves here? Um, because when somebody addresses you and says, I love you, you are my people, I want to reflect myself through you into my world um, – then this isn't, oh, now we have a sort of a moral index of what good and evil means. It means, oh, wow, you are amazing. We are Mm. your people. We Mm. bask in that. How delightful. Um, And the giving of a command or a prohibition implies something about um, this is what you ought to do, obviously. Mm. And you could stand back from that and say, well, hang on, I'm going to be a philosopher for a minute. And this means you're teaching me a bit about good and evil, doesn't it? But right. if they haven't got any such idea yet, it says, okay, that's what you want us to do. But then guess what? There's some other way which is impinging mm. upon us. And I think the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis is is just one of those very, very profound things. I don't think it's, oh, yes, I know that there is a difference between good and evil. I think it's actually... And knowing by experience, we right. have now found out what the difference is, um, that, that, that good is, is life, and evil means darkness and exile and, and, and curse. 
So I, I think the knowledge of good and evil is not just a head knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, we've got this index and we understand that there is something called good. And so. I think it's you'll, now you'll know what it's really all about. It's the sort of experiential yeah, sort, yeah, of, yeah. sort of... Like, yeah. like C.S. Lewis says somewhere about um, uh, somebody who climbs up to a high diving board, um, says, you know, you want to know what a 50-meter thing a dive <laughs> is all about. Wait until you're standing there, then you'll know what uh, it's yeah. really all about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. There's, there's, again, a lot of ground covered there in, in various different ways. Um, just before we, we finish up, um, you mentioned John Walton as possibly oh, yes, a good yes. place to start exploring these issues. Um, any other recommendations for people who want to get get their head around the whole oh, way to put Genesis together yeah, and the yeah, fall and yeah, everything yeah, else? Yeah. With? I mean, I have been very strong in the last five or six years uh, well the last ten years really by this whole business of temple theology in mm. Genesis mm. Um, Gregory Beale's book The Temple and the Church's Mission um, starts off with some of that and develops it in terms a forward looking way sort of going back to creation no the church's mission is to be the temple of God in the world, for the world, against the day of the new creation, etc. Um, that's been very helpful. John Levinson, the Jewish studies professor at Harvard, who's a remarkable Jewish scholar, um, he has a book um, whose title is just slipping my mind, but you can say I'll, it. I, re- I, will, I will it let later. people know. I'm what sorry, it this, is. Is, this is just sheer old age kicking in, <laughs> plus the fact that I got up um, <laughs> very early this morning. Um, uh, I think I think it's creation and the persistence of evil. Okay, but that 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 is a very sensitive and interesting Jewish reading of not only Genesis but what follows from it. Well, I will make sure, sure. listeners you. have the correct title and where to get hold of it by the end of today's program. For the moment, Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hope you found today's show helpful, but don't hang up on us yet. Something special coming up in just a moment that you won't want to miss. And just a reminder, there's a link with today's show where you can register for our newsletter. If you do that, we'll send you God's Not Dead. It's an ebook by William Lane Craig laying out the evidence for God's existence. Plus, you'll get loads more bonus content on top of that when you register. Or simply head to premierunbelievable.com to do that. There's a link with today's show too. For now, thanks for being with us. And here's that little extra something. Tom, we've got another song from you. Uh, always enjoy this part of the show where we get to hear something from the playbook of Tom Wright. Um, so this is um, something you've come up with, again, um, with a friend of yours, uh, Francis Collins, who's a well-known Christian scientist, um, and another um, yeah, co-author. My, on my friend one. Brian Walsh. Um, I, I wrote the first three verses of this um, I'd had the beginning of this song in my head for a year or two, and it goes to the tune of, of Bob Dylan's song, um, Shelter from the Storm, mm. which ought to be played in E major, but my voice won't <laughs> do that anymore, so I'm going to play it in C, just down a bit. And because Brian Walsh is, um, as well as a theologian, is is a great Dylan fan, um, I sent Brian the first three or four verses and said, ah, what do you think about this? And blow me by email, back came another <laughs> verse, which I then fiddle around with, and then I sent them all to Francis. Francis wrote... Uh, a special last verse for the Biologos conference, which was coming up, that doesn't really fit with with how I'm doing it right. now. But um, so it was yeah, like a lot well, of things in life, it, a rich it, collaboration. It sounds like um, the next, um, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash. It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's Wright, Collins, and and Walsh. <laughs> yes, Walsh, yes. But, but it's it it tells it tells the story of salvation from one or two unusual angles and kind of gets them scrunched up together a bit, which. And, um, 
and had its first airing, did you say, at the Missio Alliance conference? I think it had its first airing at a Biologos conference okay. in Houston a couple of years ago, and then I doctored it a bit and then did it at the Missio okay. Alliance. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, let's hear it. Okay. And the, the, the harmony of Shelter from the Storm is actually quite basic, so there's not much guitaring. It's just... Okay. When Cain had married a local girl, as they always knew he would, Seth was running the family farm and Abel was gone for good. Then Eve shook her head and to Adam she said as they planted out the corn, We've a family to feed, but what we need is a new world to be born. When Cain had built him a city, as they always knew he might, and they planned a tower right up to the sky so the top would be out of sight, then Adam sighed and to Eve replied as they faced the neighbor's scorn. A city means greed, but what we need is a new world to be born. When Noah decided to build him a boat and collect a floating zoo, and it rained so hard that they called out the guard, but was nothing they could do. Then Adam thought back to the snake in the grass on that innocent sunny morn. And he muttered to Eve, we've got to believe there's a new world to be born. Now Abraham had no family, and he'd left his city behind. And against all the odds, he trusted in God, not knowing what he would find. Then Sarah heard the voice of Eve, a whispering in her ear. It may sound funny, but never mind, honey, the new world starts right here. world's born in blood and pain and the birth pangs are severe when jesus calmed the angry storm we knew that it was near as eve stood weeping by the city wall and the temple veil was torn they watched him die with one last cry so the new world could be born Then the grave burst open, and Adam sang in praise. All creatures heard the good news, and their victory song they raised. On that Sunday morning early, they blew the jubilee horn. With the death of death and the Spirit's breath, the new world has been born. One day the holy city will come down from heaven to earth. A vast unnumbered family to proclaim the world's rebirth. The Lamb's true bride with gates flung wide to welcome the bright new dawn. With the slaves set free and fresh leaves on the tree, the new world has been born. Mm -hmm. 